Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he arose and came to his father, and while he was still, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. What kind of grace does it take to forgive a sinner? So here is Kelsey just read. We have a story that conveys the true nature of sin. And what we see is that sin is offensive, it is immoral, it's wicked, it's evil, sin is malicious, it's inexcusable, it's extravagant in its indulgence, and yet sin is, in the end, forgiven, which means what we have here in Luke 15 is a story that conveys not only the true nature of sin, but also the true nature of grace. What kind of grace must it take to forgive an extravagant sinner, like in Luke 15? Extravagant grace. Excessive, disproportionate grace. I don't know what your understanding of Grace is, but it's not deep enough. This is the biggest problem that we see with the Pharisees all throughout the Gospels and in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees are these religious teachers that hang around and they emphatically do not like sinners, which means they do not like grace. We see this back at the beginning of the chapter, so we didn't read that, but look back at the chapter of uh, Luke chapter 15, if you be helped if you just have this open in front of you. We're only going to be in one place this morning, and that's Luke chapter 15. Have it open in front of you. I'll tell you where we're at. In Luke 15, tax collectors and sinners are coming from all around to spend time with Jesus and to hear his teaching. This is, this is amazing. It's unbelievable, really. So the people who had long ago left behind any connection to organized religion, the ones known for their greed and their lust and their immorality... They're showing up in spades to hear the good news of salvation from Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious teachers, what are they doing? Surely they're the ones kind of lending Jesus a hand as people have questions about what it means to know God and to know salvation in Christ, right? No, not at all. The religious teachers are complaining about it. Look there in chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners, it says, were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. All of these obvious sinners are hoarding to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He receives sinners and eats with them. They they observe, the Pharisees and scribes, they observe this wonder of grace and they complain about it. The way the Pharisees see it is that this man, Jesus, this Jew, who apparently sees himself as some kind of authoritative teaching figure, he's undermining his own legitimacy by the company that he seeks and keeps. So on the one hand, Jesus keeps teaching them in the synagogue, interpreting the Jewish scriptures, and sometimes after that, he'd go for dinner at one of the Pharisees' house, and this was cool, this was fine. But then on the other hand, sometimes he'd leave the synagogue and have dinner, go and have dinner with not the scribes, but in the really bad parts of the city with the most notorious people in the city. Imagine Billy Graham leaving a crusade to go have dinner in the red light district, right? Doesn't make sense. So to the minds of those who are high on outward morality, Jesus is proving himself to be a fraud. He must be, because no legitimate ethical teacher would infect himself with the kind of company that he's keeping. This is not how true God-honoring religion works in their minds. Sinners stay out there, we stay in here. The question is, are they right? Is that true? Is this how the one true God works, that you leave the really lost, embarrassing sinners outside? For the person of mere outward religion, the answer is an easy yes. Of course you do. But what about Jesus? The strong reaction of the Pharisees here in Luke 15, it presents an opportunity for Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've revealed their heart for sinners. And so Jesus says, let me reveal mine. Verse 3, so he told them a parable. Actually, he tells them three parables. Notice that before we get to the long parable that we've read already, he gives two short parables. And they're both about something that has been lost. So you have a lost sheep, and then you have a lost coin. And in both of these parables, the real shock The real surprise is just how highly the person values the the thing that's been lost. So there's a shepherd in the first parable who has a ton of sheep. And the shepherd with a ton of sheep, he loses just one. In the second parable, there's a woman who has a lot of money and she loses just one coin. But then what happens is that both the shepherd and the woman, they stop everything in life. They set aside all the riches they do have and they obsessively search for the one thing that had been lost. And then, once they've found it, they come back and they gather all their family and friends and throw this excessively extravagant feast to celebrate that they found this one thing. You see, the way these lost things are being so highly valued, it it actually makes no sense. No reasonable economical person leaves 99 healthy sheep to go find one sick one that wandered off, probably fallen off a cliff at this point. What are we doing? No sensible person cuts themselves off from earning more money, investing the money they do have to go find one coin that they lost. And to boot, no practical person throws, this, throws a massive community-wide party for a sheep. I found a coin. Come on. <laughs> what do you mean? It's too excessive. To the human eye, it's, it's wasteful. The effort made in time and energy and overall sacrifice, it totally outweighs the thing that's been lost. And that, Jesus is saying, is exactly the point. In these parables, Jesus is saying, exactly. The economics of God's grace make no sense. Like the shepherd and like the woman, God, God will spend excessively, prodigally, for a very low return, at least as far as the world sees it. He will waste, as it were, extravagant grace on a lost sheep. God takes perfectly good grace and he spends it on sinners. 
And if you are a person who does not like sinners, this will fry your circuit board because it doesn't make sense. This is what was happening with the Pharisees and the scribes. This man, this obviously religious man, he receives sinners and eats with them. He, they couldn't get it to compute. And it's in this light that Jesus tells a third related, a more detailed parable, and one that drives this point home and leaves us with a lot to think about. And just an FYI, we're actually turning this one parable into two sermons. So we're going to cover most of the parable today, and then the plan is to come back around next week and finish it out together. This is a parable of a father and two lost sons. And it's a story that very much contrasts two characters. But the contrast may not be the contrast you think. So this is not mainly a contrast of two sons. This is mainly a contrast of the father and the older son and how they view the obviously sinful, openly immoral younger son. Take a look at the father this week, the older son next week. What I want us to do, I don't have points here for us this morning. What I want us to do is just kind of take a walk through this story draw out some things that seems that Jesus wants us to understand along the way. Look there in verse 11. We'll just take it from the beginning. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. So we've had a shepherd with a hundred sheep. We've had a woman with ten coins. And now we have a man with two sons. And if we're tracking with the pattern of the first two parables, what would we expect in this parable? Someone's going missing, Right? which is true, but there's a twist in this parable. Instead of just one, all of the son's fathers, all of, all of the father's sons go missing. He loses both, just in different ways. We'll come back to the second next week, as I said. It doesn't take long to see how the first son gets lost. Look there in verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. So maybe you've had the experience of a teenager wanting some space from their parents, right? This isn't super uncommon. But what's unique here is the over-revulsion and the accompanying comprehensive efforts of this son, not just to get away from his father, but to get permanently away from his father and with his father's money. So the son knows that according to custom, at his father's death, he has an inheritance coming to him. But that's supposed to come later on, only after the son has had the joy of living in the love of the father until his father dies. But that's not what the, father, that's not what the son wants, is it? The son, the younger son, wants his death-wrought inheritance now. You see his heart in this demand, and it is a demand in the parable. It's not you I want, it's what's yours, and it's what should be mine. And the, the son is, in essence, saying, go ahead and die, like legally anyway, so that I can have what's mine. I'd rather you be dead to me, that I have the stuff that I want, than to live with you until your death. And remarkably, the father does it. He says, okay, I'll, I'll give you what you want. Verse 12 says, the father divided his property between them, that is between the sons. And here the story moves at a really quick pace. The young son receives his share of the inheritance. He gathers it all up and he sets out on his own. He's finally free. Verse 13. Not many days later, the son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. The language in, in verse 13 is, is full of these superlatives. He gathered everything that was now his. So in other words, he didn't just take a suitcase. He took his posters off the wall, so to speak. He emptied out the closet. There's no trace of him left in the home. And he took off, took everything, and he took off to a far country. He went a long way away, a distant place, as far as he could go. That's where he had his eyes set. The younger son is getting lost, like literally and on purpose, He's going a long way off in a time when going a long way off meant to, that you're deliberately ceasing any possibility of ongoing communication with anybody who's left at home. 
This is a son who's cutting off relationship with his family. He's getting away. He's finally going to get to live the life that he so often dreamed of. It's been just out there on the horizon. He's going to the horizon. But that life, that dream life, verse 13, makes clear it doesn't last too long. Verse 13, he took a journey into a far off country, a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The young son takes his inheritance, he takes all of this money, and he spends, spends it down every single penny. Actually, he doesn't even spend it. The, the text says that he squanders it on reckless living. That's just, he's just using it foolishly. See how Jesus tells the story, the son does everything as badly and as immorally and as disrespectfully as you could do it. So he doesn't go off and, and in any way kind of make his daddy proud. He doesn't even go and kind of selfishly invest it in the market. He just goes out and he just splurged like a fool. He took this hard-earned, this well-saved money that had been endowed to him, and he just burned it all up in self-indulgence. Every single cent went to a selfish desire. Later on, we'll see next week his older brother has no shortage of ammunition to use against his younger brother to his father. Remember, he comes accusing this younger brother. He says, Dad, you know, you know what he did, right? He took all your money and he spent it on prostitutes. That's what he's been doing. While you're home worrying, that's what he's been doing. He's wasted everything. Verse 14 says he has nothing left. And this, by the way, is why we know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. So prodigal just simply meaning excessive or extravagant spending. And that's the son. Excessive in the worst way possible. Everything that he has, he has squandered. It's gone. But notice it's not only that. Now, now that he's away and now that he has nothing, it seems as if the world itself is conspiring to make it all worse. Look at verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The place that he wanted to be so badly, it's, it's now turned against him, so to speak. Now, this distant country is nothing but a source of great pain to the son. He had gone out. Think of this. Think, he had gone out from a place of great love, a place of great comfort and provision, this family that knew him and loved him and took care of him. He, he left that so sure that an unknown distant land would be better, would give him something that he had been longing for all this time but couldn't have because of these restrictions that had been placed on him and his family. But what's it given to him instead? What is, the, what is verse 14? What, is, what does the son have now? He squandered everything. He, he took his inheritance. He went out and spent everything. What does he have in return? What he has is need. It's the only thing he has. It's a stark picture of the consequences of sin, isn't it? The son insisted on being free from what he saw as the strict confines of his father. But all it's done is led him to even worse slavery, isn't it? He's, he's broken free from his father only now to be chained to the consequences of his sin. He has need. In his situation, it just gets worse. Verse 15. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. So in his desperation, the son is forced, the, the language there in verse 15 is, is that of joining himself to this person. He's gone out, and he's forced to join himself to a foreigner. In other words, he's forced to make himself a slave to a Gentile. He's lost his money, he's lost his place, and now he's lost his people. He's lost his inheritance, and he's lost his identity. Everything that he had, everything that had been endowed to him, is systematically being taken away by his own choices. And this even gets worse, because once he's a slave to these people, he isn't just sent out to work in the fields like a servant who could kind of retain some source of dignity. He sent out, verse 15 says, into the man's fields to feed pigs. 
So think about this. Jews wouldn't even have pigs because they're considered unclean. Now this son has to be among them and feed them. You just see this downward spiral of his life. Step after step, downward and further away from his father. And then look at verse 16. He's so in need. He's so much of a wretch. He's such a mess. He's so hungry. He is now jealous of the most unclean animal in his culture. Look at verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. The son who had been endowed a full inheritance. He's now jealous of pig food. You, you can't paint someone in a more desperate light. So this food, these pods, these were the sign of bitter poverty. And he doesn't even get any. Notice, no one gave him anything. The son had given everything to the world, but he's finding out a really hard truth. That is that the world gives nothing back. It only takes. And this is the life of sin, isn't it? It costs everything and it gives nothing. And this is exactly what the son has now. Nothing. Now it's not difficult to see this is just an absolutely horrible situation. It's, it's heartbreaking for the son. If you were to pass by the field and see this person, you'd be heartbroken for them. But I wonder if you can see how this horrible state, this is actually the very best way this path could have turned for this young man, isn't it? This undeniable misery is the best thing for this kind of son because this kind of misery, this kind of humiliation... It's the only thing that can show him what he's been missing all along. It's the only thing that can show him what his eyes couldn't see before. And that is his desperate need. Sometimes this kind of clarification only comes through a certain depth of humiliation in our lives. And sometimes in his great grace, this is exactly what God gives to those who need it. God wrought humiliation, which leads to clarification. Maybe some of us know this from experience, maybe experience in your own life, maybe experience in the lives of people that you love. Maybe it's your testimony. Maybe you got to the end of yourself like this young son did. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you're one of the ones, you're, you're kind of step three following the path of this young son, you're experimenting with every alternative means of satisfaction and you're finding them wanting and you, you go to the next one, you find it wanting and you go again, you're just sure that something's gonna, some, at some point somebody's gonna give you something. Instead, instead of finding this great fulfillment, you just keep finding misery just in new forms. Emptiness in new forms, discontentment, dissatisfaction, all in new forms. And this, I would say, is God's great gift to you. If this is you, then you're on your way to the same revelation that the Son is about to have in verse 17. You're on your way to the clarification, the revelation that what you need is what you've left behind. And that is your Father. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. It's like, the, it's like the stench of the pigs is the thing that kind of finally hits him like smelling salts. He's been in this haze of lust ever since leaving home. He's not been able to see that every next step takes him a step deeper and down into the abyss. But then all of a sudden, he, verse 17 says, he comes to his senses. What have I done? What am I, what am I doing? I'm feeding pigs. I'm dying of hunger. Again, maybe, maybe you're somebody who's had that revelation yourself. Maybe you're having it right now in this season of life. That moment of looking at your life and the mess that you've made, and you're thinking, what am I doing? What have I done? As we've said, this humiliation is good, and it's a gift. It's a wake-up call. It's time to turn to another path. That's what it tells us. But listen, it totally matters where you turn from here in this revelation. 
Because notice in this revelation, the son coming to his senses, his conclusion is not that life will be better at another city down the road. So he knows that if all he does is relocate, the sin and stench and mess will stay with him. He has nothing and he has no one. So the son, he knows he does not need a change of scenery. And he does not need a change of strategy. What the prodigal son does not need five steps to getting out of that pig pen you're in. That's not what he needs. What does the son need? He needs his father. Let me tell you, whatever mess that you've made, let this son's revelation be your own. What you need, what you need is your heavenly father. That's what you're missing. Notice verse 18. He doesn't just say, I'm going to get up and go home. That's where all my stuff is. What does he say? I'll get up and I'll go to my father. I, I know, I remember now. I remember what my father's like. I, I, know, I know now my father's heart. I know he'll take care of me. This humiliation, it leads to a clarification of the nature of his father. You see that? But it also leads to a revelation of the nature of his own heart and the life that he's living. The son's humiliation is not just a revelation of the father's goodness. It's a revelation of his own badness. I'm starving here. No one cares. But my father, he provides richly, even for his servants. That's what he, that's what he says, right? I'm sitting here starving. I know there are servants in my father's house living like sons. It also brings this revelation of his own responsibility in all this. Look at verse 18. I'll arise, go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is, this, is how you, this is how you own it, right? You, you hear how he's speaking? There's no third-person passive language here. He doesn't say, I'll, I'll arise, I'll go to my father. Father, you're not going to believe what happened to me when I left home. It's crazy. It's not what he says. It's all first-person active. I have sinned. Full clarity, full responsibility. I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what state I'm in. That is what he's come to see. And it's here with that statement there in verse 19. It's here. I think we have the crux of the parable. Because think about it. This right here, this is the only statement in the parable on which the older brother and the younger brother agree. And that is the fact that the younger brother, he's not worthy to be here. He shouldn't be here. And it's actually true, isn't it? If membership in the family is merit-based, well, then on any scale imaginable, the younger son is right. He is most assuredly not worthy. There's no argument to be made for his worth to belong in this family. This is why the son's plan was not to come home and plead for sonship, but for servanthood. He wasn't, he could kind of conjure up some kind of audacity, but not that. Not asking to be a son, just a servant would be fine. So what then? What, what will happen? This is his decision. This is what he's going to do. What's going to happen? Because the, re the reality is his fate is not up to himself, and his fate, thankfully, is not up to his older brother. His fate is up to the father, isn't it? Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. What's going to happen? I know you know the story already, but just think, what's going to happen? So thus far, the, the parable has held our focus on the younger son, but here, the father is back into the picture. So let's just, let's just take, just sit in his seat for a minute. I was thinking this week, I was trying to come up with some kind of illustration to kind of capture the emotion of what's happening here in verse 20. And guess what? I think Jesus gives it to us, right? What's, what's more intimate, what's more emotional, what's more right to the heart than a father and his son? We have a picture of the Father. So just imagine it. Really, really try to imagine it, really. Put yourself 
in this parable. So I, I would imagine that even if we, even if we're not parents, we're children of someone, imagine you're in this situation as a parent. Your child, you, you've seen a child come into the world, you, you bring this child up, you love this child, you cuddle this child when it's sick, you hold this child, you teach this child, and, they, and then they get to a certain age, and they leave. Like, not how you're supposed to leave. They leave early, and they leave angry, and they leave bitter. And you don't know where they are. And, and just imagine this, this goes on for a long time. Your child is gone. You don't know where they are. You don't have a way to communicate with them. Every now and then, maybe you get a report. Maybe you see something online. You, you hear of the little, little bits and pieces of the life they're living apart from you and apart from the Lord. It doesn't, it doesn't take much to imagine your heartbreak, right? How no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, how that child never leaves your mind. Not even for a second. I wonder where they are. I wonder what they're doing. Are they dead? Are they okay? What's the one thing? What's the one thing you want more than anything in the world? What is the one thing in that situation you would give literally anything for? Wouldn't it be to look out your window one day and to see that child coming home to you? What would you give for that moment? And then imagine one day, you're going about your day, and you look out and you, you see something, and you squint your eyes, and you think you see, and then you realize, yeah, you do. You, you see that child, and they're, they're coming home to you. The one you nursed and held, the one you loved and nourished, the one you taught and you cuddled, the one you saw leave so angrily and so bitterly, the one that you have, haven't heard from this whole time, the one you've been praying for every single day. You look out, and you see them, and they're coming home. In some ways, you look, and in some ways, you barely recognize them because they're pretty beaten down and dirty. The, they bear the scars of the choices that they've made, but you know them, right? You know that gait. You know that way of carrying themselves. It's unmistakable. This is your child, and they're coming home. What do you do? What do you feel in that moment? What emotion floods your heart in that moment? The Bible tells you, doesn't it? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Look at this. The, the, the mere appearance of his lost son breaking on the horizon, and the father's heart is struck with compassion and joy. Now, while he's still a long way off, the son doesn't know what's going on with the father, does he? Oh, what are the thoughts? What are the, what are the emotions of the prodigal son coming home? Just think of it. So from the son's perspective... All right, so he said, I'm going home. I'm going to my father. But he knows that as he approaches home, he knows that, he knows that they're going to see him from a long way off. He'll be, he'll be seen coming home, looking like this after all this time. It's just, it's just the ultimate walk of shame. How could, he, how could he face this? It's a long walk. It's a long time to be seen. It's a long time for resentment to resurface and build. It's certainly long enough time to tap into years worth of bitterness and disgust and to take all that bitterness and disgust and formulate it into words. Uh, because He's about to face the music now, right? Finally, his family would have their opportunity to tell him who he really is. What's, what's his father going to say? Would he, would he come up to him and immediately ask, where is it? Where's the money? What do you mean it's all gone? How would you feel if somebody, if you had a son who ran off with half of what you had to live on? How, how exactly do you plan to pay it back? You can see how the son might think this is just, it's unbearable. Surely he thinks, I just need to turn back. I can't do this. 
Maybe he thinks of turning back, but before he does, he looks and, and what's this? It's someone running out of the house. People don't do that. What is this? Who is this? He looks and they get closer. It's his father running to him. The text says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Think about this. Before the son even knows what's happening, before the son can say one single word of the rehearsed confession that he had, before he can really comprehend what's even happening, he's enveloped in the love of the father. He's embraced and he's hugged, and he's kissed, and he's loved. And by this, it's obvious to him now, before, before they even exchange words, the father had never, not for one second, stopped loving him and stopped eagerly waiting to hug that boy again. Let me ask, is the father, is the father so emotional because now, he, now finally he's going to get some good help around the house? Is he, is he so grateful to see his son because he's gaining the service of his son now? Is this what he wanted? Is this what he wanted? Is, is this why he's so happy because now he gets his son's service? Not at all. He wanted his son. And now he's back. The father just loves the son. His embarrassing, immoral son. He loves him. And I'm going to tell you the whole point of this church is to show us that this is very simply the way that God just loves sinners in Jesus Christ. Listen, I was thinking about this, and I was, I was wondering, should I qualify this? Shouldn't I say God loves repentant sinners, right? That sounds a little safer. And I think, no, it's not enough. That does not capture grace. Because the fact is that God loves sinners, and he loves sinners First, before they love him, God loves them. We love him because he first did what? He first loved us while we were still, still sinners. He loved us. This is the point. And this is the message that some of us need to get into our heads and down into our hearts. God loves guilty sinners like us, like this father loved this guilty son of his. Why else would Jesus paint a picture like this? Why would he make it so intimate, so gracious, so merciful? Why would he make it so excessive? Because Jesus, speaking to people who do not like sinners, wants to make very clear the simple point that God does. Look how he goes on. The son, to his credit, he begins his prepared remarks of confession, just like he said he would. Look at verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worried to be called your son. But look, the father doesn't even let him get to line two, does he? Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, pretty quickly, the, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet. I mean, goodness, the, the son was, was hoping for some like measure of mercy, but this, right? The son was worried about getting dressed down, but now he's getting dressed up. The father orders him dressed in the best robe of the family, the best ring, the best robe, shoes on his feet. And notice, none of these things were necessary. He could have done without any of this. He could have said, come on in. That's not the point, is it? The father, in his grace, by these actions, is restoring the honor which the son had lost in his sin. The son, who was hoping to return as a slave, is immediately established as a son. Do you remember the son's rehearsed statement? I am I'm not worthy. And what's the father's statement in reply by his actions? Son, it couldn't matter less what you think your worth is. Your worth is not in who you are on your own. Your worth is who you are in relation to me. You are not my servant. You are not my slave. 
you are my son. This is grace. This is the grace of God that we have in our union with the one, only, eternal, begotten Son, Jesus Christ. I'm convinced, I'm convinced of this because it begins with me, I'm convinced that some of us need an entire reintroduction to grace. Because grace means that you get to be what you were created to be, even though you don't deserve it. In fact, grace means that you get to be what you were created to be, even though you deserve the very punishment of the Father that you left. So maybe you're here, and maybe you're of maybe the type of Christian who tends to think something like this. Well, <laughs> you don't know me. I'll just, you know, I'll just kind of, you know, on that day, I'm just going to kind of slip in the back door of heaven, right? I'll be, I'll be wearing the towel. I'll be washing the plates while everybody else feasts. And I can certainly understand the sentiment of what you mean. But listen, the gospel hears takes like that on God's grace, and it says no. The gospel doesn't work like that. There are no mere paupers in heaven. There is one and only one status in the kingdom of God. You know what it is? Son. Son. There are no servants. There are sons. Ladies, don't, don't feel second class in that. Son, this is actually an honor for you, too. You are sons. You are, we are sons and daughters. But what this means is that you, too, ladies, daughters of the king, you get the status of sons. You're not under the men in the heavenly kingdom of God. There are no servants. There are sons. We see this in the way the father keeps on honoring the sinful son. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he's alive again. What is he celebrating? A resurrection. That's what he's witnessed here. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Think about this. This is the point. How does the father respond to one little lost sinner being brought home? Only by giving the most extravagant order that he had at his disposal. He says, go get the fattened calf, the one saved only for the most excessive celebrations. Kill it so we can eat and celebrate. You see what he's saying? He's saying, in essence, who's the prodigal now? That's what he's saying. Who's the excessive spender now? The father says, I'll see your extravagance of sin, and I'll raise you this extravagance of grace. That's what's happening here. And this is the gospel message. Where there is prodigal, excessive sin, Christ brings prodigal, excessive grace. And all of this, why? Was it because the son was all of a sudden good? No, it's because the father is. In this gospel, we do not merit God's posture of favor towards us. We just accept it. We accept it. Think about this. From this point on, do you think the younger son was ever confused about how it is he was let back into the family? He knew it was grace all the way down. He was in not because he was good, but because the father is. And I just wonder, I wonder if, is this how you see yourself as a Christian? Listen, I know that many of us here have made a total wreck of our lives through sin. You know, maybe you hear this parable and you really identify with the older son. Like I said, well, Lord willing, we'll get there next week. But maybe you hear this parable and you really, really identify with the younger son. You've, you've lived this kind of life. Maybe you are living this kind of life. And I don't know what you see when you come in and you look around at a church. Maybe you see a bunch of perfect people, a bunch of people who have never had a lapse into serious sin in their lives. And then there's me. Then there's you. Listen, whether you know it or not, the truth is that the church, the truth, the church is full of prodigal, excessive sinners. 
the church is full of people who have wasted good, God-given gifts. We are the people who have spit in the faces of those who have cared for us the most. We are those who have messed up and slept around. We are those who sit among a church who rightfully speaks out against things like the sin of abortion. We're people who have actually committed it. We're the people who have, we've ended up in the most immoral, embarrassing situations, places we never imagined we would be. We're the people who have committed the worst sins in the book. We've even committed sins that aren't there. The world is full of people who are legitimately guilty of terrible sin. And maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're even right about it. The question is, in this parable, can you see what God does for sinners who sin like that? Who sin really badly? Who sin really excessively and extravagantly? God gives excessive, extravagant grace. Grace to cover the sins that you thought could never be covered. Maybe you're thinking right now, he can cover all their sins but not mine. And the gospel says, no, in Christ, guilt that was on you has now landed on Christ, which means now there is grace to cover your drunkenness. There is grace to cover your sleeping around. There is grace to cover your abortion. There's grace to cover your lying. There's grace to cover your stealing. There's grace to cover your pornography. There's grace to cover your adultery. How is this? Is this like contingent on, on you kind of meriting your way back up to the Father? How is it? How is it that there is such seemingly unending grace? There is only one way. It's because the unending goodness of Jesus Christ. God's grace is so deep and can cover such a wide swath of sin because the righteousness of Christ is so high and so deep and so wide. Jesus is eternally God, the one, only, truly begotten Son. He's the perfect one. He's holy and righteous. Jesus is without sin. He's perfect in every way. And in the gospel, the Father sent this perfect Son into this world of imperfection to redeem for him more sons and daughters out of it. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus has come, God in the flesh, and he has come for sinners, where sinners were completely unrighteous, where you were completely unrighteous, Jesus brings perfect righteousness. Where, Jesus, where sinners broke the law with all kinds of rampant immorality, Jesus fulfilled that law for them. And where sinners are completely guilty, deserving of divine wrath from the very Father God, Jesus comes and stands in their place, taking that punishment upon himself. Sinners deserve the curse of death. You deserve the curse of death. I deserve the curse of death, and Jesus became a curse for us. He has given his own perfect life. Jesus has given his own righteous blood to atone for the extravagant, unrighteous sins of people like us. This is his work on the cross. This is, maybe you wonder, why the cross? Why, why is there this thing called the cross? This is it. Because an extravagant price had to be paid by the grace of God. And this right here, the cross of Christ, this is how the worst of sinners are forgiven their extravagant sin. The only question is, do you believe it? Are you claiming it as your own? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never claimed that righteousness as your own. And I would just, from the Bible, hold it out to you. You can be saved from your life of sin. All your actions, your embarrassing actions, your immoral actions, your impure actions, you can be saved from the consequences of those actions, the worst things that you can think of that you actually did. You can be forgiven when you trust in Christ and come to the Father through him. You know, many of us, many of us extravagant sinners, you know, we're, we're tempted this morning to, to echo the Son and say, listen, I am not worthy, God, you know, I am not worthy to be called your son. And we just, we'll, let's just leave it at that. And th listen, that may be true. But here's the point. 
God himself doesn't leave it at that. In the gospel, he says to you what he said to the son. It couldn't matter less what you think your worth is. Your worth is not in who you are on your own. Your worth is who you are in relation to me. You are not my relegated servant. You are not my slave. What you are, by faith in Christ, by union with the one true son, what you are is my son. Church, we have a, a prodigal God, which means that for those who are in Christ, what, what defines you now is not your past extravagant sins. What defines you now is present extravagant grace. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Let the Pharisees preach that gospel to you this morning. He receives sinners and eats with them. In fact, the way that we're commanded to remember this great gospel is to come and do just that, to dine by faith together with Christ. That's what we come to now in the Lord's Supper. Listen, if you're an exceptional sinner and you've been saved by faith in the work of the Son, now's the time to come forward as a trophy of his extravagant grace. Let's pray now together. Well, Father in heaven, we give you all the praise for this grace. What we pray is that you would help us to believe it, to live not in the guilt and shame of any kind of past excessive sins that we've committed, but to live right now in the present extravagant grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would glorify you by believing this down to our very core and living in light of it. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.